Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in James chapter 1, we hear these words, Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Oh, in church, we listen to the Word of God. That's what we are doing right now. And we certainly know from Scripture that one of the main goals of the preaching is that faith would be worked in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. However, as James 1 makes clear, God's Word also says a lot about our lives and how we are to live, how we are to respond to God's Word. And God does not want us to only hear His Word this morning and then have it go out the other ear, forgetting what we have heard. He wants us to act upon His Word, to put it into practice in our lives. The Lord wants our lives to be changed. This morning, our text is from 2 Peter 1. We'll see at the heart of our text, God in this passage, He calls us to add to our faith a number of virtues. It's a call to be a doer of the Word of God. But as we hope to see, this call is also based on God's work for us in Jesus Christ. So, as I preach to you God's Word this morning from 2 Peter 1, I've summarized the sermon as follows. Because God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, He calls us to add every virtue to our faith. And we have three points. We'll look at, first of all, the things God has given us, and that follows verses 1 through 4. And then we'll look at the virtues we add to our faith, that's verses 5, 6, and 7. And then finally, the results of heeding this call, that's verses 8 to 11. So in our text, God is calling us to add many virtues to our faith. Notice, however, that our text does not jump right away into these virtues. Our text, the basis, our text bases this call on what God has already done for us in Jesus Christ. And this is the continual pattern throughout all of Scripture. First, we learn what God has done for us to save us. Then we read how we must live in response to God. This pattern is something often called the indicative and the imperative. I know that's a bit of a fancy way of saying it, but the indicative always comes first, the imperative comes second. The indicative is about who we are in Christ. The imperative is how God wants us to live. You can find this pattern through all of the New Testament epistles, for example. And it's the same in 2 Peter 1. So the first point of this sermon is the indicative, what God has done for us in Christ. We find this in the first four verses of our text. Peter, first of all, writes, 
to those who have received a faith equal to us. Those are words easy to gloss over, but it already speaks volumes. Faith is something we receive. It's not by our own power. It's not by our own goodness. It is a gift of God. And it's the same way for every believer of faith equal to us, Peter says. We receive this faith, our text says, by the righteousness of our, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this, too, speaks volumes. First of all, here we have an emphatic declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ. You see, the Greek text is constructed in such a way that God and Savior here refer to the same person. The type of construction here in Greek means that the first reference and the second reference are the same person, God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Second, we receive our faith by the righteousness of Christ, His perfection, His saving power. It's all of God. That is why we believe. And then we hear this blessing. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Again, it's easy to quickly read over these words. But what a beautiful blessing. Grace and peace multiplied to you. May grace and peace always be increased to you from God, our Savior. May it keep building and building through this knowledge of God and, and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's only the basic introduction of this letter. But there's a lot more coming in the next verses. The Spirit through Peter can give this blessing because, as he says in verse 3, God's power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need for eternal life, everything we need to live for God has been given us by Him. Everything. And our text says that God's power has given us these things through the knowledge of Him who called us. You see, we had no hope of overcoming sin or death, eternal death, but if we know our God, then we know that these things are not a problem for Him to overcome. You see, God's divine power to raise the dead makes it possible. In fact, it's God's resurrecting power that is at work in us. Think of what we read from 1 Peter 1. You've been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, raised to new life. Listen to Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul says there, that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened, that we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. In other words, the same power that God used to raise His Son from the dead is the same power at work in you. In fact, Ephesians 2 says that even though we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. 
the same resurrecting power. So we have eternal life, even now in Christ. It's by God's grace. And that same resurrecting power is also what we need to live a a new life, a godly life. We've been raised with Christ. We can now live a new life. How could we live like we are still dead in sin if we are raised with Christ? It's impossible. But we are alive in Him, so we will live a new life. Verse 3 continues saying, His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Now, it can also be translated, we have been called by His own glory and excellence. So, either to His own glory and excellence or else by His own glory and excellence. And if the sense is we have been called to His own glory and excellence, the meaning is this, that we have been called to experience and to enjoy God's own glory, His own excellence. And in eternal life, we will certainly experience and enjoy these very things. Just think of the glorious things you enjoy here in this life. So many things that testify to the majestic glory of God. But everything we experience now will pale in comparison to the glory that is coming. Now, if the sense here is that we've been called by His own glory and excellence, the meaning is this, that in our conversion, God enlightens our hearts to see His unsurpassing glory and excellence, and He draws us unfailingly to Himself by His very being. God displayed His glory and excellence primarily in giving His very own Son to die for us in our place. For that shows His perfect, indescribable love for sinners. It shows His unfathomable grace to those who have sinned against Him. By the cross, God displayed His perfect love, His infinite worthiness to be worshipped. And through the preaching of Christ and Him crucified, the Holy Spirit enlightens our eyes to this glory and excellence of our God who did not spare His only Son so that we might live. And by His power, He uses it to bring us to faith and bring us to Himself. And our text says that through these things, He has granted us His great and precious promises, promises to forgive our sins, to free us from slavery to sinful desires, to resurrect us from the dead on the last day, to give us free access to God, to give us everlasting joy on the new heavens and the new earth. Great and precious promises these are. The Apostle Peter ends this section of our text with one last thing. Yeah, so that through these promises you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. 
Now, what does it mean that we become partakers of the divine nature? Well, it certainly does not mean that we become God in any way in eternal life or something like that. We are creatures. We will always remain creatures. He is the Creator. But we do have the Holy Spirit within us. And so, true God lives within us. And it's by the Spirit that we are conformed to the image of God Himself. And we begin to take on God's excellent virtues in our lives because we are in Him. We're partakers of the divine nature. And notice how He contrasts this with our old life, our old life of sin when we were in unbelief. He says, we are partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world due to sinful desires. As 1 Peter 1 puts it, we've been ransomed from our futile ways of life that were inherited by our forefathers. Lives of sin. Our nature has been changed. We've been set free from sin so that we might serve God. And it's in that light of all these things that our text is now going to call us to add certain virtues to our faith. That's what we're going to look at in the next point. So, verse 5 of our text, it makes a switch. We've just heard about how God has given us everything for life and godliness. And the Holy Spirit, through Peter, now calls us to grow in perfection. Or as 1 Peter 1 put it, perhaps, you shall be holy as God is holy. And he will give us a list of virtues to add to our faith. And as he does, each one of us is to examine our own hearts, our own desires. Not someone else's, but our own. Each person needs to ask himself or herself, am I adding these things to my faith? And I certainly include myself in this as well. Verse 5 begins, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Or a better translation would be, supplement your faith with excellence. It's the same word used to describe God in verse 3, the one who has called you to his own glory and excellence. So we are to put on excellence. As those who believe in Christ, we make it our aim to take upon ourselves the same excellence of God's own character and being. And indeed, God's excellence is supreme. He has no flaws. He excels in righteousness, justice, and compassion and mercy. No one can defame Him for having a dishonorable character. He's worthy of all praise because of His perfect ways, and works. Of course, we will never reach this excellence of God, but this is something we still strive for, to put on a character that is noble and admirable and wholesome. And This will make us more faithful, dependable, and true as God is these things. And we will grow to become what the Bible describes as blameless, upright, 
someone of excellent character can be trusted. He or she does not live a double life, appearing upright around others, but embracing sin in private. Verse 5 goes on. We supplement excellence with knowledge. And we can distinguish two different kinds of knowledge in Scripture. The first is knowing, certainly, facts and truths contained in the Bible. The second is more relational, where you grow in intimate fellowship with someone. And certainly both senses of knowledge can be in view here. It is indeed important that we keep growing in knowledge of the truths of the Christian faith. And we will never finish in growing in knowledge of who God is and what He has done for us. And the Bible, indeed, is worth a lifetime of study, and even if you study your whole lifetime, you will never mine its complete depths. And it is important for us in our growing in maturity in the Christian life that we do grow in knowledge of of God's Word. Now, to be sure, the Bible certainly warns against possessing only mere facts, only mere head knowledge, as we might put it. Simply knowing lots about the Bible is not virtuous in itself. However, I appreciate what the late Dr. R.C. Sproul said about this. He said, the Word of God can certainly be in the mind without being in the heart. However, it cannot be in the heart without first being in the mind. And that is true. By growing in knowledge of the Word of God, the goal is to also have the Word of God in our hearts, to grow in relationship with the Lord. that That happens also by growing in knowledge of Scripture, what God has done. Our text says we also, to our knowledge, we, we add self-control. Self-control means ensuring our actions are not controlled by evil emotions and impulses and desires. And even when you have good desires, we ensure that they are channeled in a good and positive way. Well, people often think they are free when they can pursue whatever it is they want, right? Evil desires, on I'm free because I can pursue them as I want to. That's many people's view of freedom, but the reality is they are slaves of destructive desires. They're controlled by them. They obey them. But that's not how it is to be with us who have been redeemed. We Learn to control our actions according to God's Word. Remember, you are a partaker of the divine nature. As 2 Timothy 1 says, God has given us a spirit of power and love and self-control. To self-control, we add steadfastness or perseverance. Steadfastness means that in the face of suffering, we continue on in the Christian faith. Serving the Lord even still. It's a call to put on patience in the midst of difficulty, trust during tribulation, and endurance in the face of persecution. 
Verse 6 goes on. To steadfastness we add godliness. And godliness means living a life worthy of the God. It means living every day knowing that every moment we live before the face of a holy God. And that our actions and our thoughts and our desires are going to reflect that. And godliness means growing to become like God in every way. And to godliness we add brotherly affection or brotherly love. The Greek word here is Philadelphia, and that's why the nickname of the city of Philadelphia in the, in the U.S. is the city of brotherly love. No brotherly or sisterly love, what does that look like? Well, it means showing affection and goodwill to your brothers and sisters in Christ. It means thinking the best of them in your heart. It means speaking about them with respect and dignity. It means refusing to slander and gossip about others in the church. Now, as I say these things about brotherly affection, I'd like to ask you, whom are you thinking about? Are you thinking about other people, or are you thinking about yourself? Yes, this call goes out to us as a body, but this call goes out to each of us as individuals. Let everyone search his or her own heart and add brotherly, sisterly affection to his or her life. And to brotherly affection, we then add love. And love is the greatest virtue. Love thinks of others before it thinks of oneself. Love serves others and gives oneself to others. As 1 Corinthians puts it so famously, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And look again at the note of urgency here. Make every effort to add these virtues to your faith. We can also translate it, apply all eagerness to add these things. Be zealous in every way. And this isn't the zeal you put into your schoolwork on the last day of school before summer. This is the effort that's more in line with Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals. It's setting your heart and your mind and your will on these virtues being a doer of God's Word, brings us to our last point. So these are some important results, or there are some important results to heeding this call to add these virtues to our faith, as we're going to see in the last part of our text. Our text lists one negative effect of not listening to this call, and then it lists also a number of positive results. And let's start with a negative consequence of not heeding this call. If we do not add these virtues to our faith, then it reveals something to us and about us. Something about our spiritual health that we might not realize. Listen to what verse 9 says. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, 
having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Here he uses the image of sight to describe a spiritual condition, being so nearsighted that he is blind. I'm sure most of us have gone to the eye doctor before for an eye exam. And during an eye exam, there's all sorts of tests that the doctor will do to check your eyesight. Maybe it's reading a a letter chart where the the size of the letters gets progressively smaller as you go down. Maybe it's looking through some fancy machine which flashes light and maybe you have to click a button or something like that. And going through those, those tests tells you how good your eyesight is. And maybe you find out during that exam that, oh, you're nearsighted. Maybe you find out, oh, I'm so nearsighted, I'm legally blind. Maybe you need laser eye surgery to fix your eyes. Maybe there's some cataracts that need to be removed. One thing's for sure, something needs to be done. Well, the Apostle Peter uses the image of being nearsighted. And we could consider the list of virtues found in our text, things like godliness and love, and We can listen to these virtues, go through them one by one, and treat it like an eye exam to check your spiritual health. See if you can spot these virtues in your life. If you can't, it's telling you there's something wrong. So our text says if you don't have them, you are nearsighted, so nearsighted in fact you are blind. The Spirit says this because He says you have forgotten that you were cleansed from your past sins. Maybe you have lost sight of what your Savior has done for you. Maybe you can no longer see God's amazing grace in forgiving your your own debts. Maybe you are focusing only on your present circumstances around you right now because they are difficult. Whatever the case may be, you're forgetting the big picture of what God has done for you. And you need to zoom out and see again God's amazing grace towards you. Focus on the things mentioned at the beginning of our text. God has given you everything you need for eternal life and for godliness. Focus on the crucifixion of Christ who has saved you from the torments of hell forever. That will help to fix your vision. So that's the negative side. There's a positive side as well. Verse 8 gives the first one. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, if you grow in these things, make it your aim to grow in these virtues, you will bear much fruit in God's service. You know, think of that image of bearing fruit. Think of a a beautiful fruit tree, maybe a mango tree. I love mangoes. Think of a large mango tree full of juicy ripe mangoes, something delightful and pleasant. And that's how you will be when you add these things to your life. 
and you will be great use in God's service for His glory. And verse 10 gives all the more reason to add these virtues to our faith. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. See, by practicing these virtues, we establish ourselves more and more in the Christian faith. It's by adding these things that we learn to stand firm in the truth of the gospel. As these things grow in our lives, we confirm all the more the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts and our lives. It's further evidence that we are indeed God's children, God's chosen ones. Think of the parable of the sower. Seed was thrown, uh, sown on different soils. The seed started growing in two of the soils only for the plants to wither or get choked out. There was seed that grew in good soil. And the plants kept growing and they, they bore much fruit. Notice that he says, if you practice these things, you will never fall. We're all the more equipped to withstand Satan's attacks. We will persevere until the end. Then our text ends with the last result of adding these virtues to our faith. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Think about these words. An entrance into the eternal kingdom of Christ. Christ's kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And this is happily ever after. It's not a fairy tale. Christ's kingdom will be a kingdom full of peace and joy forever. An entrance into this eternal kingdom will be richly provided for you, he says. You see, our God is by no means stingy. He's already given us his beloved son to die for us. So when our text says that this entrance will be richly provided for you, it means richly. And that, beloved is great motivation to heed God's call and to add these virtues to your faith. Amen. Let's now respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing together hymn 72.